at our conference a few weeks ago on March 22nd, also discussed when thinking about how we leverage America's shale revolution through oil, but also natural gas exports. It's a problem which is of interest from a geopolitical standpoint, but also we have to say is of interest from an economic and even a technical aspect point of view, uh, simply because the possibilities for large-scale uh, natural gas exports uh, are fairly new. Remember, it was only in 2005, only in 2005 that the general consensus was the United States was not going to be a natural gas producer any longer, uh, that its supplies were running out, and that its main focus would have to be natural gas import facilities. Uh, and plans were laid for uh, the development and construction of six of those. And now, of course, what has happened is, is that states and the federal government are now scrambling to find a way in which to convert those natural gas import facilities into export facilities to send it out rather than take it in. So we've got two experts, internationally recognized experts, to talk to us about the problems and issues arising from the natural, ex, natural gas export direction. David Montgomery is an expert on the economic issues associated with climate change policy. He testifies as an expert witness in state and federal courts on antitrust and damage leading to petroleum and natural gas markets. Uh, he was formerly co-head of the Energy and Environmental Practice at Charles River Associates. He's also served as Assistant Director of the U.S. Congressional Budget Office and Deputy Assistant Pre Secretary for Policy at the Department of Energy. He's taught economics at the California Institute of Technology and Stanford University and was a senior for fellow at the Resources for the Future. Victoria Zaretskaya is a leading industry economist at the U.S. Energy Information Administration, Office of Petroleum, Natural Gas, and Biofuels Analysis. She monitors international, emerging trends in international natural gas markets and is responsible for analysis and modeling of short and long-term market fundamentals. Her recent research includes analysis of global nat liquid natural gas trade, forecasting of short-term natural gas pricing, benchmarks in Europe and Asia, and modeling of long-term demand supply balances and prices globally. She's the author of numerous EIA publications on international natural gas and transportation sectors. Uh, and prior to joining EIA, EIA, Ms. Zaretskaya was a principal fuels analyst at Exelon Power Team. I believe in the way in which our panelists have divided up the labor that she's going to go first. Uh, and so with no further ado, let me leave the podium to uh, Mrs. Zaretskaya. Um, thank you for the introduction. Um, today we would like to present um, the outlook for the U.S. natural gas production and LNG exports uh, based on EIA projections that we publish an annual energy outlook. Um, let me talk briefly about EIA and its mission. We are an independent analytical agency with the, with the Department of 
within the Department of Energy. As such, we do not propose or advocate any policy positions. We collect, disseminate, and analyze energy data to inform Congress, the executive branch industry, and the general public. Our projections assume current laws and policies and represent our views alone. There has been a lot of discussion about growth in natural gas production in the United States. And um, I just want to mention a couple of figures there. Um, shale gas production is a, a fairly new phenomenon that really uh, fundamentally changed the uh, United States and international natural gas markets. Um, uh, we, grow, we, we have grown from as little as uh, 5 BCF a day in 2008 uh, of shale gas production to over 40 BCF a day today. And shale gas now accounts uh, for almost 50% of U.S. natural gas production. When the shale revolution started, areas such as Barnett Shale in Texas showed significant promise, but its significance um, has been um, overshadowed uh, in recent years by production in Marcellus Shale, so we moved northeast. And uh, Marcellus Shale covers um, Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia. That's where we see um, the majority of production growth going forward in our forecast. Um, so based on our um, most recently published annual energy outlook, and I just want to uh, stipulate here that we are publishing a new AUO um, in mid-June. So the projections that I'm presenting today are a bit outdated. We um, will be updating those projections and we will release them um, in mid-June. And so going forward, the, in, in shale, um, the growth in shale and tight oil place as projected in our most recently published annual energy outlook um, is expected to continue um, at a pace. Um, while the growth in, of production in Marcellus is expected to slow, it's projected to be the play that will provide the most gas production cumulative from 2013 through 2040, followed by Hainesville shale in Texas and Louisiana. Tight gas production is also growing through the projection period, largely from sedimentary rocks located in the Rocky Mountains and Gulf Coast regions. By 2040, U.S. Uh, total dry gas production is projected to amount to 35 TCF or 97 BCF per day, with shale, gas, and tight oil plays providing about 55% of the total. In other words, we're still seeing shale gas as driving the growth in, um, in natural gas production in the U.S. Um, over the forecast period. Um, please note that the bulk of this analysis was performed before the extent of the oil price collapse was known. So our projected WTI price um, was $71 in 2016, and we know that it's uh, less than half of that now, and increases to $136 uh, per barrel by 2040 in 2013 dollars. At the time of our projection, we only had Sabine Pass um, as the liquefaction facility um, exporting uh, under construction, exporting uh, from the United States as a firm facility as a firm build. Um, the main point here is that U.S. becomes a net exporter in our projections um, um, by 2017. Oh, and while the U.S. consumption is projected to grow and absorb some of this production from shale, 
productive capability um, would be sufficient um, to also supply an increasing level of exports via pipeline to Mexico and as LNG. While the U.S. has been a net importer of natural gas over the last six decades, EIA is projecting that the U.S. will become a net exporter and that exports will increase throughout the projection period. The ability to produce is largely determined by the cost of developing the resources relative to the market price of gas. In AO 2015, the price at Henry Hub increases from $3.69 um, um, $3.69 per uh, MMBTU, which is about a dollar from uh, above the current average to uh, $5.46 in 2025 and to $6.60 in 2035. That's the current projection of Henry Hub prices in 2013 dollars that is used uh, to de derive this forecast. Um, higher prices incentivize greater production, but also pull down the demand for gas used domestically and um, for exports. The demand for U.S. gas domestically and internationally depends on such things as economic growth and alternative sources of gas and other fuels. The U.S. Um, LNG exports are coming at the time when globally um, the capacity is expanding, uh, global liquefaction capacity is expanding at a massive rate. So we have, on one hand, a very robust um, supply growth from new capacity additions, and on the other hand, we have a relatively weak demand, uh, particularly in core markets um, in Japan, South Korea, and China. Between 2015 and 19, we estimated about 16 BCF a day of new liquefaction capacity additions will come online. That's from projects currently under construction, so that's a firm build. And that amount will increase the total liquefaction capacity globally by over 30%. So it's a massive expansion of liquefaction that is taking place right now. These new builds are almost evenly split between the Atlantic and Pacific basins. And the new capacity additions are concentrated uh, primarily in two countries, the United States two countries account for about 93% of new capacity additions. We do see some small capacities being built um, in countries like Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, Colombia, but those are very, very small numbers compared to uh, the major suppliers, um, the Australia and the United States going forward. Once all the projects in Australia and the United States are completed, Australia and U.S. will account for more than one-third of global liquefaction capacity. Australia is projected to become the largest liquefaction capacity with 11.5 BCF a day of capacity, uh, which represents, uh, to put it in the context, uh, this, this represents about one-third of global LNG trade in 2014 and 2015. Now, in 2014, we had a global LNG trade at 32 BCF a day. In 2015, we have it at 32.3 BCF a day, which means that in, and that's the highest um, level of LNG trade that we have ever experienced, um, um, even after Fukushima, uh, with all the growth in Japan, with all the growth in other markets. Um, uh, this is just uh, to provide a context um, for the 
capacity additions that are coming online. It's a very large number. U.S. is also adding a large amount of new liquefaction from five projects currently under construction. Under construction, we, uh, we're talking about Sabine Pass, Cameron, Freeport, Corpus Christi, and Cove Point. By 2020, when all current U.S. liquefaction projects are completed, the United States will account for almost one-fifth of global liquefaction capacity and will be the third largest capacity holder after Australia and Qatar. The majority of new liquefaction capacity in Australia is contracted long-term, to buyers in the Pacific Basin. Japan is the largest destination market for Australian LNG, accounting for about 46% of uh, exports from Australia, which is about 5 BCF a day. China is the second largest off-taker with about 20%, followed by South Korea at uh, about 8%. Now, that leaves about 2 BCF a day or 17% for Australian capacity to be traded with what we call flexible uh, um, in, in, in flexible markets or spot markets, this is contracted capacity without, uh, with flexibility and destination clauses, which means that this uh, uh, liquefaction, um, this LNG exports can be taken anywhere in the world. Approximately two-thirds of U.S. liquefaction capacity has also been contracted, uh, with majority going to Japan and India, about 2 BCF a day of each, South Korea and Europe, about one BCF a day of each, and smaller markets, uh, Chile, Indonesia, and Taiwan. Now, again, a particular feature of U.S. contracted uh, liquefaction capacity is that it also has flexibility in destination clauses, which means that these uh, uh, LNG exports can go anywhere in the world. U.S. LNG exports are projected to displace some of the uh, pipeline imports in Europe, displace traditional suppliers um, such as Russia and Norway under the right pricing environment. And of course, um, the, 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 idea of, um, the idea of participating in the spot markets means that um, U.S. LNG exports uh, will be going to highest uh, priced markets and um, arbitrage opportunities will exist and will be very robust. American prices have been the lowest um, in the last, um, since 2010 globally, um, and we're talking about primarily Henry Hub prices, um, then, then the natural gas prices in the rest of the world. Currently, there is no global integrated market for natural gas, and pricing mechanisms vary by region. This graph shows three distinct global natural gas pricing benchmarks. We have Henry Hub as a red line, National Balancing Point, or NBP, which is a liquid trading benchmark in the UK, uh, which is used as a proxy typically for European spot natural gas price in green line, and blue line represents average uh, LNG import price in Japan. Now, the black line here is representing oil price, Brent oil, Brent crude oil, measured in BTUs um, on, on a BTU equivalent basis, so that we can compare uh, natural gas prices to oil prices. So natural gas prices around the world, with the exception of Henry Hub, are generally indexed to the price of some underlying commodity, which is typically crude oil or petroleum products, particularly in Europe. Historically, natural gas prices in the United States have been delinked from the price of crude oil due to relative isolation of the U.S. natural gas market. Uh, the prices tend to uh, be closer to international natural gas prices until about 2006-2007, and since the shale revolution in the United States, um, 
uh, gas prices in the United States completely diverged from the rest of the world. Japan LNG average price, um, track crude oil price, which is um, primarily JCC, uh, Japanese contracts are indexed of JCC, which stands for Japanese crude cocktail price, which tracks Brent crude oil price with about one month lag. And so Japan LNG prices track crude oil prices um, with three to six months lags. Um, and uh, typically 90% um, of Japanese LNG um, is contracted long term. So when we talk about spot market in Japan, because of security of supply and other considerations, Japan is 90% or so dependent on long term, midterm, or some kind of contracts because they need that supply uh, security. And so Japan LNG prices have traditionally and historically been um, the highest in the world and comparable to other prices in Asia, particularly in South Korea, Taiwan, again, because of oil indexation uh, to JCC as the pricing benchmark in, in that region. Now, lately, um, Asian countries are pushing towards establishing its own pricing benchmark, and there have been um, some um, actions taken to develop gas pricing hubs in, in China, in Japan, um, and in Singapore, and those countries are trying to establish natural gas pricing indices that would be relevant to their markets so that um, these countries do not need to rely on other uh, pricing benchmarks such as Henry Hub or NBP. However, given the large volume of U.S. spot LNG, we see that uh, U.S. LNG contracts or contracts for U.S. LNG exports um, have some kind of hybrid pricing mechanism where some of price, uh, prices, uh, some component of price in contract is linked to um, oil and some component is linked to Henry Hub price. So this hybrid pricing in um, US LNG exports, export contracts is, is very typical. Now, with the collapse in uh, crude oil prices um, from about over $200 per barrel in August 14 to about half of that by January 15, so in six months we had a uh, halving of the uh, oil price, NBP um, prices have also decreased. Now, while NBP is an independent liquid uh, trading point in, in the United Kingdom, because of its interconnection with the continent uh, through the interconnector, um, NBP prices do reflect uh, in some way linkages to crude oil prices, which are dominant on the European continent. And so we see uh, that NBP price, while not tracking as closely crude oil price as, let's say, um, Japan LNG price, um, it still has a relation, uh, relationship with the oil price. And so what we see in NBP, given the collapse in oil prices, is that NBP prices have moved from about $7 per MBTU in January 2015 to about $4.50 as of February and March of this year, which is a significant price decrease for the European market. And another interesting point of the very short-term developments given the collapse in oil prices is that prices now seem to be converging, um, the spot prices seem to be converging um, between the regions. We see spot uh, prices in Asia being very low. Um, now, these are just spot prices, not contract prices, because contract prices, even with the current, after the legs have already been reflected in the uh, prices of Japanese LNG, we still see Japanese LNG prices averaging uh, about 7 uh, to $6 per MBTU currently. But spot prices in um, Japanese, uh, for Japanese uh, uh, um, LNG imports are lower. And they're, they're trading um, very comp at, at, a, at a comparable level to NBP price. But there's 
above MVP prices. What I want to point out here is that when investment decisions to build up liquefaction capacity uh, globally um, were made, pricing environment was very different. The Australian LNG contracts assumed $100 minimum uh, per barrel crude oil price going forward. Australian liquefaction projects, particularly from CBM, are very, very expensive. And uh, for them to be profitable, uh, they need... Um, $100 and above oil price, which is equivalent uh, to about $12, $13 per MMBTU for gas price, which is not nearly what Australian LNG product, uh, pro, what Australian LNG exports will be realizing uh, going forward. And since the collapse in oil prices, pricing relationships have changed with greater convergence, as I mentioned, between prices in the Atlantic and Pacific basins and more limited arbitrage, arbitrage opportunities between basins. So current pricing environment adds uncertainty to the near-term outlook for the U.S. LNG exports. And I want to emphasize near-term here because uh, with shifts in oil prices, we expect shifts in, um, in the volume and flow of U.S. LNG exports um, going forward. In our analysis, we do sensitivity tests in order to test our assumptions against different uh, scenarios. Um, and our projections greatly depend on the set of assumptions that we make. Um, this graph shows uh, Henry Hub prices in three of the scenarios or sensitivities, as we call them, relative to um, the reference case. The high, and oil, uh, the high and low oil price cases for WTI assume um, WTI price in 2040 in high oil price case to be $246 per barrel and $72 in low oil price case compared to $136 per barrel in 2013 dollars for the reference case. What it does, what these what this price assumptions uh, uh, do to our uh, flows um, is that in high oil prices uh, throughout the world, increase the demand for natural gas and raise natural gas prices that are tied to oil prices. While this tied to oil prices is expected to weaken over the projection period, it's, it's, it's still going to remain a factor. This increases the demand for US LNG, but at progressively higher price. The reverse happens in the low oil price case. We have a third case, which is the high oil and gas resource case, and we developed this case using assumptions that result in higher estimates of technically recoverable crude oil and natural gas resources than those in the reference case. The result is not only much lower natural gas prices, but increased production to satisfy both increased level of export and domestic consumption. More specifically, in this graph, we can see the degree to which exports, particularly LNG exports, vary between the low oil price scenario and the high oil and gas resource case. First of all, in the reference case, there will be much discussion, uh, while we're having much discussion about um, US LNG exports, pipeline exports are comparable in volume to the projected uh, LNG exports over the projection period. In particular, Mexico is building up its pipeline infrastructure. 
and is increasingly reliant on increasing natural gas imports from the United States. We have already observed large increases in U.S. exports to Mexico over the last year, and this trend is expected to continue, with Mexico being a very large amount of um, combined, cycles plan, uh, combined cycle plans um, uh, across the country. And for, for Mexico, the issue is uh, moving that gas from the north into the uh, rest uh, of the country um, where the demands uh, growth centers um, are forming. LNG exports in the reference case uh, increased, just to give you some idea of our projections, um, to 3.4 TCF, which is an equivalent of 9.2 BCF per day. Now, the 9.2 BCF a day is our current liquefaction capacity under construction from the five projects that we mentioned which means that we're essentially forecasting that U.S. Um, LNG exports would be um, at the levels that we see right now in terms of capacity being constructed. And that's by 2030. And that level stays on through between 2030 and 40 uh, as higher domestic prices dissuade further growth. Now, in the opposite, uh, uh, with the oil price, um, with, the, with the low prices in the high oil and gas resource case, when we forecast uh, a lot of natural gas coming online, LNG exports stop out at about 10 TCF, which is about 28 BCF per day in 2036. Now, again, to put it in the context, we have 32 BCF a day of total global LNG trade in 2014. So that means that uh, that forecast um, is very robust in terms of the volume of um, LNG exports available to the market. Now, it's important to note here that the model has limited international feedback in terms of um, in terms of uh, feedback loop uh, from um, the international uh, demand module, and the increases in production capability are only applied domestically. Finally, under relatively low sustained low oil prices, no facilities beyond the Sabine Pass are, are projected to um, produce uh, uh, um, the, the amount of LNG uh, for exports, and that's the assumption in AO 2015. Um, and therefore, um, the low price um, case um, has the, the least um, or the lowest volume of U.S. LNG exports um, in the long term. Questions? Uh, no, we can. We can. I think David has his own presentation. Actually, I have a few slides too. Yes. Okay. Yes. Do Thank you. Want you. Me to, um, to stay on stage or? Um, I'm going to uh, follow the uh, comfortable um, precedent set by the other speakers and just sit here and uh, talk for a bit. But since my neck probably doesn't turn as well as theirs, I have my slides sitting here in front of me on my iPad just so that I can try to keep what I say at least slightly in synchronization with uh, what you're looking at on the screen. Um, I led the team at NERA Economic Consulting that did a series of studies of the economic benefits of LNG exports uh, to the United States. Um, our first study was commissioned in 2012 by the U.S. Department of Energy to assist them in their determination of whether LNG exports satisfied the public interest criterion that they were requ 
are still required to apply to applications for exports to non-free trade area countries. Um, we did a follow-on to that, updating the analysis to the AEO 2014, which we released in 2014. So um, like Victoria, I will start out talking a little bit about a study that is um, was done before the collapse in oil prices and the uh, even more significant drops in natural gas prices than we had seen at the time of the study. Um, and uh, But I will then proceed to offer some of my opinions about uh, both the outlook for the LNG market and the um, uh, how these conclusions of our pre previous studies um, uh, apply today. Um, and Victoria, you did a great job of laying out all the facts that I now don't need to talk about. Um, and I will go through three or four slides covering the um, discussion that is outlined here. Um, our conclusion in the study that we did for DOE was that... Next slide. Uh, do you do it or do I do it? Uh, I can. Oh, thank you. One second. There we are. This doesn't necessarily mean that we will stay on track, but at least it will be my fault. This is the first slide I was referring to. Um, we looked at a series of scenarios for exports that... Um, there we are. Correspond pretty much to the range of scenarios that Victoria was talking about. Um, they were from a previous year's AEO. Differences don't matter for our discussion today. Um, and what we found was that no matter what the level of exports, the United States achieved net economic benefits from exporting LNG relative to not allowing LNG to be exported at all. Uh, moreover, we found that the more gas the U.S. was able to export, the bigger the economic benefits were, and that any restriction on exports produced less benefits for the U.S. economy than a simple policy of allowing exports to any country that wanted to buy them. Um, and what you see on the upper right-hand corner of this slide corresponds to cases in which Gas is cheap to produce in the U.S., the high oil and gas resource case, and where a great deal of it is desired by other countries. And that means we can sell the gas at a substantial profit and at high levels without um, uh, having much effect on the U.S. Uh, use of natural gas. Um, I will return to that topic of where these exports come from uh, in the next slide. Um, at the, you know, at the, the lower end, we see cases in which either it was very expensive to produce gas in the United States or the rest of the world didn't want very much. And sure enough, in those cases, we didn't export very much. In some of these cases, natural gas prices were fairly high in the U.S. if the reason we weren't exporting was because of being in the low oil and gas resource case, which I interpret more as being a case in which the kind of hysteria about fracking wins and it turns out that it's very difficult to produce in the U.S. Well, then we won't be exporting very much gas, um, but gas prices will be very high here. Um, where then would, and so this is the slide that kind of is behind our conclusion that unrestricted exports um, provide the largest economic benefits uh, compared to any other policy for dealing with exports. Um, this is our analysis breaking down where the exports would come from for a case that was sort of our reference case 
sort of sometime in the, 20, in, you know, the 2020 time period, um, that well over 50% of the exports would be coming from increased natural gas production in the United States. Next to none would come from diversion of supplies from um, U.S. manufacturing, in particular from the use of natural gas as a feedstock for producing chemicals. Um, but what's good news to one part, to one side, is always bad news to the other side. And so, although this should, these results we had hoped would comfort those elements of the chemical industry that were concerned about LNG exports, they I think actually helped to explain the um, otherwise irrational opposition of environmental groups to the expansion of LNG trade globally. And it basically is that we're going to be producing more gas in the United States if we're going to export the gas. And I believe that the concerns about, you know, the, the exaggerated concerns about the impacts of fracking, that worries about greenhouse gas emissions or beliefs that the government should do nothing that would ever allow greenhouse gas emissions to increase, have been transferred from a discussion about oil production to a discussion about oil export, about LNG exports. And so LNG export policy has become a tool used, you know, that many groups, I think, see as a way of trying to limit U.S. production. And that is, in fact, what they would largely do. Um, just for a little bit more development, we took a look in the study at what, where, not only where the natural gas that's being exported would come from, but what effect unlimited exports in our reference, actually in our reference case, um, with no constraint on exports would have on the chemical industry and manufacturing industries. And basically you can't see what the effect would be on output. I hope that's what I have on the screen. Um, we took a look at unemployment. Normally I give about a five minute lecture on why I never, why no one should believe any job numbers that anyone cites in, a, in any study. We tried to avoid my objections in doing this study by simply looking at the question of how would the additional investment that would be brought about by the by LNG exports compared to having no LNG exports, how would that additional investment in oil and gas production and in um, construction of facilities and also in you know, the higher standard of living that comes with, with improved uh, position in international trade, what would that do to job, to job creation while the recession is still continuing? And at the time we did the study, um, CBO was predicting that the um, recession would end in 2018. That is, we would be back to the natural level of unemployment by 2018. So we just took a look at what would be the impact on jobs during the period of, of, the, of time when generally people think the economy is weak, rather than talking about how we're going to be creating jobs 100 years from now at a time when nobody has, when we have no idea whether the economy will be in a boom or a bust at that point. Um, so what I'd like to do now, and then finish up quickly so that we can have some questions and finish as Arthur asked me to by 2.30, um, how does the current LNG market outlook that Victoria described so ably um, affect uh, these conclusions? The first one is, the findings, our findings about the unambiguous benefits of free trade still hold. Um, I think we're seeing proof of that as we look at um, 
project, you know, pro projections of what's going to happen to global LNG trade or exports in the United States. The, although gas is cheaper than it's ever been in the United States, we have rivals coming online who have to keep pushing gas out, like Gorgon. Um, we have um, a soft market where everyone was hoping there would be a boom in Asia. Um, and um, we're probably not going to see very much gas being exported under those circumstances, which is exactly how the economy gains the greatest benefit. We export the gas that somebody is willing to pay us more than it costs us to produce. Um, now, one thing that I think we got right, but probably for the wrong reasons and uh, should have been more aggressive about is we did opine that the huge rents that project developers were looking for in shipping gas to North Asia were going to be competed away fairly rapidly because once we get the kind of supplies and capacity coming into the world LNG market that you just saw, gas on gas competition would start driving prices down to a level essentially so that in any importing country, the price of landed gas would equal the cost of liquefaction plus the cost of shipping plus the cost of regasification in that country plus whatever the cost was for obtaining the gas feedstock for liquefaction in the supplying country. So basically, all of the rents would compete away between the country that was shipping the gas, the country that succeeded in shipping the gas, and the country that was receiving the gas. Um, in other words, those five, six, seven dollar profits that some, some um, developers were hoping to get on building a terminal in the US and getting gas to Japan for seven and making 15 for it would disappear. Well, they disappeared right away, and they disappeared because the price of gas in Japan, as I'm indicating here, seems to have dropped from about 15 to about seven for a delivered cargo of natural gas to Japan, seven, 750, something like that. Shipping from the US Gulf Coast, unfortunately, shipping rates have also dropped by about 60% over the past five years. So you can now ship gas from the US to Asia for $1.50 where the shippers were claiming like three times as much as that a few years ago. Um, liquefaction cost, the long run marginal cost or the tolling fee that some firms have actually signed up to pay, the demand charge is about say $3 a million BTU. In the US, unlike other places, you actually have to buy gas, you have to pay $2 for it to get, and then right now, more in the projections we're looking at to put it into the liquefaction facility. That pretty much wipes out the margin for trying to get gas from the United States to Asia. Um, at this point, right at today, it looks like the national balancing point price for gas in Europe might actually have ticked up a little bit above the price in Japan or below. The forecast that I've been looking at and preparing for this seem to you now see the two close, one above the other, one below the other, but it only costs the US 50 cents to go to Europe, whereas it costs Australia $1.50 or $2 to get to Europe. So maybe Europe's going to look better for the United States than Japan is, but we really don't know which of those is going to turn out. So it's a much more uncertain environment and one that's much harder to figure out how to make money in for an exporter, and therefore um, we might well see periods of time when exports are not, when we're actually not even using the full capacity of Sabine Pay, well, where we're not using the full capacity 
of any facility that is not fully booked on long-term contracts. CoGas, one of the contractor, Korea Gas companies that has made the, has the contract with um, Sabine Pass, this $3 I have here is a sunk cost. They have to pay that whether they ship or not. It's a take or pay contract. So they're going to keep moving their gas through Sabine Pass no matter what. But someone who's looking at selling merchant gas or someone who is thinking about building a, a new terminal, um, it's, a, it's a tight market for doing that. Um, and it gets increasingly tricky as you are not, as you look further back in how far into construction a terminal is. But we have a regulatory process that's probably going to cause even more problems. I am very concerned about the ruling that Federal Energy Regulatory Commission just issued about Jordan Cove, where it, it's a, an, ex, an LNG export terminal in Oregon. It's always been very controversial, controversial because Senator Wyden doesn't want it. The people in Oregon don't want it. Um, that's not supposed to bother FERC, but FERC denied the application for the terminal and it denied the application for the 250-mile pipeline that would have served the terminal. Um, and it's hard for me to tell in reading their opinion whether what they're doing is signaling a distaste for merchant facilities. That is, they think a, a, a liquefaction terminal and its contract and its pipeline that's feeding it has to have a full book of, of contracts signed before they will approve it, or whether they just don't like having to approve new pipelines to go to a terminal, or whether they're trying to duck a conversation with the not-in-my-backyard folks from Oregon, from Oregon, or whether it was, in fact, a defective submission, which is what they say. We kept asking for more information about the contracts, and they wouldn't give it to us, so we deny it. But you can try again later. Um, that is, to me, not a conducive regulatory environment, especially in the current circumstances, for one particular reason to me, which is that in a that this is a highly capital-intensive industry. And I'm going to pick up on that. But it's an industry that we can expect to cycle over time. Whatever the price of LNG is in the world market, it's not going to stay that. It's going to go up or it's going to go down. If the price that if we have that it takes a long time to build liquefaction capacity, once it's built, there's a strong incentive to keep it operating. Um, at the same time, you can build gas um, regasification facilities faster, but not instantaneously. So we're likely to see a cycle, as we do in many um, capital-intensive industries with very low operating costs, between excess capacity and not enough capacity to export gas to serve the global market. Well, in this kind of a situation, there is a huge first-mover advantage because of what economists sometimes call kind of a, you know, well, strategic deterrence. That is, if you build a facility, your rivals know that once you have sunk three, four, five, ten, fifteen billion dollars in an LNG facility, you are going to keep shipping that gas. And they had better not go out and try to compete with you because that's sunk as far as you're concerned. And you're going to keep shipping the gas. And they can look ahead and say, you know, they're creating a glut in the market and I better not come in. So if you really do want to be in the market in 2020, maybe you should get your capacity on the ground now and figure out a way to deal with a cycling, you know, soft, um, unpredictable market. And I think I see that happening, that um, 
We have different kinds of contract terms coming in that provide different kinds of protections to buyers and sellers. We see gas being sold in spot markets in various ways, which we would have never expected LNG to do. That kind of flexibility is going to be very hard to for companies in the industry to achieve if they have regulators looking over their shoulder to ask them whether they have signed up enough people on long-term contracts when maybe they don't even want to, and where we can't be sure that, and where they can't be sure whether they'll get through the queue before somebody else is really not as qualified but is further along in the FERC process or that FERC likes better than them. So I do see that there are potential regulatory hurdles that could be a problem, as well as just surviving the current market glut. Okay, this time I am going to exercise my prerogative to ask the first question. It's a question for both of you. Um, and it's a question I actually posed to a panel that we had for our March 22nd conference. Um, and that is this. Uh, Energy 101 always teaches that oil and oil prices represent a global market. Natural gas market, natural gas prices reflect localized market. There is no global market in natural gas. Is it possible, or could you foresee a scenario in which liquid natural gas exports from the United States or from the United States in conjunction with, for example, Australia? I mean, that's an astonishing, astonishing number. More than a third of all liquefaction capacity in those two countries. Is there a scenario in which export of liquid natural gas does create a global uh, natural gas market and therefore a global natural gas price? I would say yes, but with the qualification that it will be a global natural gas market in which there are substantial price differences between importing countries and exporting countries. An exporting country, an importing country will only get imports if its price is equal to what I just said, the regasification cost, the shipping cost, the liquefaction cost, and the cost of buying gas in the company it's in the country that it's importing from. That can be technical term for economists, a fully co-integrated market in which prices go up and down together everywhere. Price goes up by a dollar in the exporting country, it'll go up by a dollar in the importing country, but it's not going to be the kind of market that we see for oil where we think we can talk about Brent as if it represents the price in Texas and the Gulf uh, and the, the Persian Gulf and all of that. Um, we actually can't. There are basis differentials in the oil market too, but they're so small that they get rounded off when we're talking about round numbers for oil prices. Let me add to that a little bit. So um, in 2015, about 30% of uh, LNG trade was traded on a spot basis, about one-third. And those spot uh, um, prices, um, what we're seeing right now in, in the prices globally of LNG imports is the convergence, which is the first time that it has been, you know, that, it's, that it has happened, where we see the spot prices in Asia being as low as the spot prices in the um, in Europe and the United Kingdom on the continent, and the pipeline um, exports from Russia to continent uh, um, are also very low and comparable to to MBP prices. So we are already seeing some sort of a global price convergence 
excluding the United States again, and I want to emphasize uh, Henry Hub is projected to remain um, at the lowest level um, internationally um, in terms of prices. We, we do see um, that in the periods of, su of supply uh, abundance, as what we're entering right now, and this, this period is supposed to continue for a number of years, uh, you know, what's perceived by the industry as uh, LNG glut, um, but of course, um, we don't know the extent of that because some projects could, you know, ship less, uh, could be, you know, the, the, the startup dates could be deferred into the future and so on. There are, there are ways to mitigate what's perceived as, as the LNG glut. But nonetheless, there is a lot of supply available. And when we see the supply abundance, we see um, in Asia and Europe apparently price converging and limited arbitrage opportunities between basins. Now, going forward, again, um, while there would be some uh, hybrid pricing and indexation to Henry Hub and indexation to potentially some pricing benchmarks in Europe, TTF and BP, you know, other, other uh, uh, benchmarks, we still will have an oil price guiding the natural gas price in Asia and in Europe. That's something that will probably remain for the foreseeable future, if not immediately, if not for the next 10 years, a longer term. Um, there would be some component of oil price in the natural gas price. And as long as that remains a factor, oil price is always higher on the BTU basis than natural gas price. And so Europe may go back to its, uh, um, to more influence of oil price in the um, natural gas price. The same happening in Asia. Asia is um, very well contracted and it always has been that way. Again, security of supply considerations and so on, they depend on LNG. Um, we see a very, uh, um, we forecasted, we expected a much stronger, much more robust demand growth in China for natural gas and LNG imports. Uh, we're not seeing it yet. Uh, China does have a lot of contracts uh, uh, um, coming uh, in the next few years, uh, Australia and so on. So the demand will pick up. What we see right now, the soft demand, it will probably not stay. And China will become, if not the largest market, one of the largest markets globally uh, for LNG uh, imports. And so those prices will have some, some relationship, uh, the, the, sorry, those countries will have some relationship uh, uh, with the oil price. And as long as that relationship holds, there would still be um, it, some, some sort of divergence um, between regional pricing benchmarks. So we do not, in the long term, we do not necessarily see prices in Asia being the same as price in Europe or the same as price in the United States. At least that's, that's our current view. Yeah, I see. Thank you. Questions from the floor? We've got a question here. Oh, that's okay. I think we, we, we'll, we'll hand you the mic anyway. I guess it's all, there we go. Uh, in light of the, the glut in LNG and the consequent low prices, have any of the liquefaction projects now under construction had their start date extended? Um, uh, do you mean in the United States or in Australia? No, in the United States. In the United States? Australia might be interesting too, though. Um, what we're seeing in Australia, and I I'm not sure that it's related to the glut uh, as much as it's, it's related to um, just kind of how generally the projects are constructed. 
the wishful thinking online date usually <laughs> never happens. And projects typically in 90% of cases do get delayed um, independent of pricing environment. But now in the current pricing environment, there is more incentive um, um, <laughs> to bring the projects with hope that perhaps prices will improve in the next year or two or three. Um, we do not see so far um, major delays uh, in Australian projects coming online. Um, the Gorgon that just, uh, there could be potentially some technical glitches. Gorgon that just shipped the uh, first cargo two weeks ago now uh, has a technical glitch. It's a Chevron project. They had a similar glitch in Angola LNG, I believe, uh, was the project that took the project offline for some time, at least a year. And so potentially there are technical uh, difficulties to bring the project online on time as announced. But in terms of deliberate postponing of projects, U.S. projects are proceeding on time according to the dates that were um, indicated by the developers a few years ago. And these dates do get uh, um, updated and moved into the future again, not necessarily because of pricing environment, but because of technical uh, issues associated with project construction and so on. Um, and so to, to, to expect uh, a significant delay or major changes to this period, as, 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 as we mentioned, between 2016 and 2020, when we bring this massive expansion of liquef liquefaction capacity online, we don't see that time frame being expanded uh, or extended too much into the future. Uh, certainly not to 2025. No projects will happen um, and will start by 2020, maybe 21, but no, not much longer than that. We have two questions on this side, and then I'll have, we'll come back to one there, and then uh, then we'll move on. We're going to move on to our next panel straight away, I think. Okay, Victoria, just following up on that Q and A, I would assume that Australian projects, like U.S. projects, have anchor contracts for most of the capacity. They're not speculative. They're not merchant projects. So they wouldn't have a big incentive to uh, come online later. And David, did you refer to Jordan Cove as a merchant project when mentioning the distaste that FERC may have shown towards a merchant project? And would it be a merchant project? Um, no, it just was a project that was applying for approval without having negotiated sales contracts yet. So beyond that. Right, but no confusion between that and a pure mer merchant right. come as you, as you go project. Yes. Though, if it was completed before they had a lot of contracts, it would end up by default being a merchant project. Right. In terms of Australian uh, liquefaction, the majority of it has been contracted on a long-term basis, and Japan is the largest off-taker. We calculate, and our information is based on a multitude of trade sources, so it's a very extensive database of long-term, short-term, mid-term contracts, just, just about any contract. And contract can be eight-month contract. It doesn't have to be 20-year contract. So the Australian capacity has been very well contracted. And we're talking about uh, of 11.5 BCF total. And by the way, that's the installed liquefaction that does not 
equal the actual LNG exports. Usually there is, uh, the capacity is never run at 100%. Best case scenario, it runs at 90%. 70 is the world average uh, in 2014. Um, and that is not a per, per particular plan, but in, including plans that were not operating and others were operating at 95%, but to compensate. So the global average liquefaction utilization was around 70%. So Australia is very well contracted. We have five BCF a day, about one half going to um, Japan. We have a lot going to China. We have about 10% going to South Korea. So it's all the, the Asian markets. Now, what is interesting is that Chinese contracts has flexibility in destination clauses. That means that capacity, uh, those exports can be taken anywhere. And China, and actually there's a very interesting movement, where, you know, JIRA, the new uh, joint venture, the Japanese, the largest two Japanese utilities, uh, uh, you know, established a new trading um, company. So uh, the, 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 the buyers in Asia are trying to, to gain clout. They're trying to get to gain power, the buyers. So it's a buyer's market. They know it. They try to go to other countries, you know, you know, to South Korea, to China, and so that there is more um, and there is more movement in that direction where Chinese are now trying to get to find ways to divert the contract volumes to to not take that LNG, um, to send it elsewhere or de defer contracts to a later date. And so just because the capacity is contracted, and even if it's a firm long-term contract, it doesn't mean that the LNG will flow to that country. And about 2 BCF a day, according to latest calculations of Australian LNG, will be in spot market. Now, for the U.S., that number is significantly higher. And again, U.S., uh, majority of U.S. contracts are flexible destination clauses, contracts that can be taken anywhere. That means that there would be a lot of arbitrage going on and a lot of uh, kind of uh, a lot of liquidity in the short-term market market, which has never been available before. Now, if we look at Japan before Fukushima, Fukushima brought online about 2.5 BCF a day of new LNG imports. So that's it. Now, it's 2.5. We're talking about massive expansion of liquefaction. And that's the largest LNG buyer in the world. So that's just, again, to give the context that we're talking about very large numbers. There would be very robust spot market. The contracts, even long-term contracts, may have all kinds of variabilities within them. Uh, the flows can be, the exports uh, can be taken to completely different countries. The growth, what's interesting, what we're observing, the growth is now in smaller markets that are just coming online. Last year, uh, three markets uh, have been uh, um, brought online. It's the market in uh, Egypt, Pakistan, and um, Jordan. And those, uh, those countries have been very uh, robust LNG takers. Uh, they have imported, uh, well, for, for, for the beginners, uh, uh, good, quality, good quantities of LNG imports. Um, Poland has uh, joined the LNG import club. Uh, we have other uh, markets and floating uh, regasification, which is a ship that can, um, you know, that can be installed uh, and can, uh, it's, it's much less costly. It's, it's, it's easier to install and so on. And those uh, floating regasification units are being considered by many countries, by several countries in the Gulf um, and around the world um, as that bridge, that cost-effective solution to start bringing natural gas into the country. Thanks. Um, this is Jenny Mandel with Energy Wire. A question for you, David. Uh, you mentioned some uh, concerns with a regulatory process, and my question is if um, some of these projects that are proposed but not approved continue to move forward in the next few years, sort of waiting for the financial environment that they want to return, but they you know, try to knock out some of the regulatory hurdles, um, and they get those approvals, will they be able to rely on them 
at the point when they're ready to make a final investment decision, meaning there are some time limitations, say, on the FERC uh, approval. At, or, well, now I'm confusing, actually, if it's the DOE or the FERC, but like one of them lasts just seven years, right? Um, will those be there when they turn to them? Yes, I think, well, since DOE changed the order of the process, now um, I think for any new applicants, and I think for everything that's in the pipeline at this point, um, you go to FERC first. And after final, FERC grants final approvals, then DOE will take up the public interest determination. Um, and so there's that uncertainty, which is whether, you know, under whoever is president when the FERC finishes its um, deliberations, uh, whether DOE will still be um, allowing, um, you know, basically, you know, approving all applications that have gotten through FERC or will decide to, you know, call a halt sometimes. So there, there's certainly that uncertainty. Um, the, the full FERC process seems to take two or three years. Um, so we're getting out to the point where um, I think it's hard to predict exactly what the status of the market will be, but I would think there would still be some flexibility for companies to receive their FERC approval, to receive their DOE approval, and then move forward. The problem is that FERC doesn't seem to want to grant approvals until they see a lot of contracts. And so that makes it hard to get your approvals and then wait a bit to see if the market improves. In fact, it's hard for me to see how you can do that after the Jordan Cove decision unless FERC clarifies that to say, well, we just need to see that you're really trying to get people lined up, but you don't have to have contracts and specific, um, you know, with specific dates in them for us to give you approval. That, that, so I, I, that's why I said that I think that that's, a, that that decision throws some substantial uncertainties into uh, the kind of uh, calculations that you're describing. And then last question to this panel down here. Mike Sullivan with Energy Intelligence Group. I wanted to ask you about the shape of the second wave, the U.S. LNG second wave, 2020, 2025. What I can't wrap my head around is whether It'll start up with extra with the remaining trains that are frozen at Sabine Pass and Corpus Christi, or would it start up with the modular trains one by one, a little one million ton per year increment? I'm not sure how that's going to shape up. Well, it's a it's a very interesting question. Um, it's a very interesting question. So, 30 or so uh, liquefaction projects have been proposed in the United States. The Jordan Cove is a very interesting example. Um, the perceived market glut will not last forever, um, maybe through 2022, maximum 2025. Where will the new LNG be coming from? Um, we need to start thinking about that now, given the lag that is required to build the liquefaction uh, capacity. So. It's possible, um, and we don't consider that in our projections, uh, it's possible um, the, the new liquefaction trains, uh, the new liquefaction projects, I should say, not the expansion of the existing facilities currently under construction, will be uh, brought online um, post-2022-23. Uh, uh, um, 
But given the current amount of uh, uh, liquefaction, it's more likely that it would that the capacity under construction, all the trains in the U.S. that have taken final investment decision, um, will be built and will be shipping LNG going forward. And it would be some time before any new project would be um, considered uh, to the point of final investment decision. Um, and we should not also, in that equation, forget about Canada and projects on the western side of Canada. There are two very advanced projects, the Pacific Northwest and LNG Canada, that are potential competitors to U.S. LNG exports uh, on the western side, uh, to, to the Asian markets, I should say. Um, so the, the short answer to your question is that it would, we expect full utilization of the U.S. facilities, the five that have been, uh, uh, that have been mentioned that are under construction with all the trains at those facilities that took final investment decision to proceed to be constructed. Those flows are, um, coming online and finding buyers and so on. It will take uh, the markets to some time to absorb this uh, uh, liquefaction uh, capacity. It will take some time. And so those projects will be running first and up to the point of uh, maximum, uh, potentially, um, at some point in the future, certainly not the very near term, um, before any of the other projects on the U.S. side um, that have been proposed and are close to investment decision before they proceed. That's, that's, that's the current view in our outlook. Yeah, um, I agree with your conclusion. It's just hard to see how the economics can work for a greenfield facility or for a you know first train even if it's converting a an import facility to an export facility to be able to be prof you know to, to find buyers who are willing to sign contracts that will cover that cost before those buyers are snapped up by the additional trains that can be brought on just at a lower cost per unit of capacity Thank you.